Hello. For better or worse, you've just accessed the latest podcast of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. This edition of the guide will be focused on the recent California Supreme Court case of People v. Sanchez, a case that has long been awaited by prosecutors interested in the question of when an expert can testify to out-of-court statements as a basis for the expert's opinion. In about 10 seconds, Mifong Trong, a gang prosecutor with the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office, will be joining us with a host of questions about what happened in Sanchez and some of the effect it's going to have in future cases for prosecutors, especially gang prosecutors. In the meantime, let's cut to our theme music. This podcast is approved for 75 minutes of general self-study MCLE credit. All right, it looks like DA Trong is now in the house. Welcome to the show, Mifong. Hey, Jeff. I kind of like your chair better. Can we switch? Sure. Considering that you're with child, it's the least I can do. Thank you. All right. You're such a gentleman. I know, and I'm uh, unhappily accommodating that request of yours. So, uh, I understand you have some questions about the recent California Supreme Court decision in Sanchez. I do. Um, I'm somewhat familiar with the facts of Sanchez, but just in case the audience is not, why don't you tell me what happened in Sanchez? I can do that. So this guy Sanchez was walking around in possession of a loaded firearm and a baggie containing heroin when he gets spotted by, by some officers. He flees into a nearby apartment and he discards those items, but unfortunately for Sanchez, the items were later discovered by the police and he was charged with possession of a firearm by a felon and being in possession of the drugs. He was also charged with active participation in a criminal street gang known as the Delhi Street Gang in violation of Penal Code Section 186.22, subdivision A. And he was also uh, charged with having committed his felonies for the benefit of the Delhi Gang in violation of Penal Code Section 186.22, subdivision B. Well, Jeff, before you continue, let me make sure that our listeners are aware of what proving a violation of subdivisions A and subdivision B of 186.22 involves. Okay, have at it. Oh, okay. Well, to prove a violation of subdivision A, which is not an enhancement, but it's a substantive offense, we have to prove the defendant actively participated in a criminal street gang with knowledge that its members engage in or have engaged in a pattern of criminal gang activity and that the defendant willfully promoted, furthered, or assisted in any felonious criminal conduct by members of that gang. Does the statute define what a criminal street gang is? It does. Um, it's, a criminal street gang is an ongoing organization, association, a group of three or more persons that has as one of its primary activities the commission of one of numerous crimes that are listed in subdivision E of the statute. The group also has to have a common name or common identifying sign or symbol, and the members of the group have individually or collectively engaged in a pattern of criminal gang activity. All right, is there a special definition for a pattern of criminal gang activity? There is. 
A pattern of criminal gang activity is shown by showing members of the gang have been either convicted of or have committed, attempted to commit, or conspire to commit two or more of the following offenses listed in subdivision E of the statute, that those offenses were committed within a certain time period, and that the crimes were committed on separate occasions or by two or more persons. Okay, so that is subdivision A. That's the substantive offense. What about 186.22B? What does that say? Well, that's the enhancement section, and that increases the punishment for a defendant who is convicted of a felony that we can show was committed for the benefit of, at the direction of, or in association with any criminal street gang, and was done with the specific intent to promote, further, or assist in any criminal conduct by a gang member. So to prove both the substantive gang offense and the gang enhancement, we often use gang experts to prove things, such as whether the group is a criminal street gang, the gang's primary activities, the group's common name or identifying signs, whether or not that members of the gang have committed two or more of the list of offenses, that the crimes were associated, I'm sorry, that the crimes were committed for the benefit of or in association with a criminal street gang, and that they were committed in order to promote, further, or assist in criminal conduct by gang members. Well, Mifon, thank you very much. That was uh, an informative and necessary diversion because it helps explain why the hearsay and confrontation clause issues that arose in Sanchez actually arose. Well, did the prosecution in Sanchez put on a gang expert? Yep, they did, uh, to help prove that the defendant was an active participant in the Delhi gang, and also that he committed uh, the felony for the benefit of the gang. What did the expert specifically talk about? Well, the gang expert uh, ends up testifying about his general background expertise, which included investigating gang-related crimes, interacting with gang members as well as relatives of gang members, talking to other community members who might have information about the gangs and their impact in the areas where the gangs operate. He also read reports about gang investigations. He said he reviewed court records relating to gang prosecutions. He read jail letters. He became acquainted with gang symbols, colors, and artwork. And finally, he talked about some of his more formal training that uh, was offered by various law enforcement agencies. So aside talking about his experience and training, did he talk about gang culture or the Delhi gang in particular? Yes, both. But what really created the issue in the case was what the experts specifically told the jury about the defendant. Information that stemmed from out-of-court statements and which was admitted under the rationale that it provided a basis for the expert's opinion. So what information was provided? Well, the information came from three types of documents. He relayed the information contained in these documents. Step notices, police reports, and field identification cards. What are um, step notices? All right, so step notices, according to the opinion, are documents that the local police department had developed to help control gang activity. The notices are given to individuals associating with known gang members. The purpose of the notice is to both provide and to gather information. The notice tells the recipient that he is associating with a known gang, that the gang engages in criminal activity, and that if the recipient commits certain crimes with gang members, he can face increased penalties for his conduct. Now, on the return portion of, 
of the notice, the issuing officer records the date and time the notice was given, along with other identifying information like descriptions and tattoos, and the identification of the recipient's associates. It may also record statements made by the gang member at the time the notice is given. And what are the um, field identification or FI cards? So those are just small report forms on which uh, the officers more informally document contacts with the gang members. Uh, some departments will call them field contact cards. The form contains personal information, the date and time of the contact, associates, nicknames, etc. And sometimes these cards will also record statements made at the time of the interaction between the officer and the gang member. Okay. So um, what information then was given to the jury by the expert that came from the step notices? Well, the, the expert said that the defendant had received a step notice on uh, June 14, 2011. And according to the notice, it documented that the defendant told the officer giving him the notice that for four years he'd kicked it with the deli, or kicked it with guys from, from, from deli, and got busted with two guys from deli. And what information was given to the jury that came from the police reports? The expert gave details regarding a shooting uh, from August 11th, 2007, and he said that defendant's cousin, a known deli member, was shot while defendant stood next to him. Uh, the expert said the defendant told police then that he grew up in the deli neighborhood. The expert also gave details regarding a shooting on December 30th, 2007, and said defendant was with another member of the Delhi gang when the member was shot from a passing car by a member of a rival gang. And finally, the expert reported what occurred on December 9th, 2009, that defendant had been arrested in a garage with a gang member, uh, the same gang member he had been with uh, a few days earlier, and another gang member, and that inside the garage, uh, according to the police report that he was relaying, the police found a surveillance camera Ziploc baggies, narcotics, and a firearm. So what information came from the field identification cards? Uh, the expert stated on December 4th, 2009, uh, five days before the, uh, the earlier arrest, on uh, the later arrest on December 9th, 2009, an officer had contacted the defendant in the company of another Delhi member. Why was all of this information um, given to the jury? Well, ostensibly, it was offered so the jury could assess the validity of the opinion the expert ultimately gave. What opinion did he ultimately give? He opined that the defendant was a member of the delegate. The expert also gave an opinion that the conduct engaged in by a hypothetical person in defendant's shoes would have benefited the delegate because the gang member was willing to risk incarceration by possessing a firearm and narcotics for sale in Delhi's turf, and because such conduct would create fear in the community that ultimately redounded to the Delhi gang's benefit. So was any of the information that the expert, that the gang expert conveyed that came from the step, um, step notices, the police reports, or the field identification cards, um, was that within the personal knowledge of the expert? No. And that was the nut of the problem. All right. Why is that the nut of the problem? Because the information the officer conveyed to the jury from the reports, the step notice, and the FI card was all hearsay. I don't think it was. The information wasn't hearsay because a hearsay statement is one in which a person makes a factual assertion out of court and the proponent, proponent seeks to rely 
on the statement to prove that assertion is true. But if the statement is being offered for some other purpose, other than to prove the fact stated, then it's not hearsay. And you said that the information was offered as a basis for the expert's opinion. So if that's the case, it wasn't offered for the truth. Well, Mifong, if we were having this conversation before Sanchez issued, I would tend to agree with you. However, the Sanchez court held the information was hearsay. Well, since I'm usually right, can you tell me why I'm wrong this time? Okay. <laughs> because all of the statements were what the California Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion written by Justice Corrigan, no less, called case-specific out-of-court statements. The court held when any expert, not just gang experts, relate to the jury case-specific out-of-court statements and treats the content of those statements as true and accurate to support the expert's opinion, the statements are hearsay. It can't logically be maintained that the statements are not being admitted for their truth. When an expert testifies to case-specific out-of-court statements to explain the basis for his opinion, the statements are necessarily considered by the jury for their truth, thus they're hearsay. And like any other hearsay evidence, it's got to be properly admitted through an applicable hearsay exception. Since the statements didn't fall within any applicable hearsay exception, they were case-specific hearsay that was improperly brought before the jury. California Supreme Court overruled its own long line of decisions to the contrary, including People v. Gardelay, a case uh, well known uh, for involving gang expert testimony of a similar nature to, that was to, to the kind of gang expert testimony involved in Sanchez. Wow, okay. Well, I have a lot of questions. First, what is case-specific hearsay? Second, whatever it does, doesn't the evidence code allow an expert to rely on otherwise inadmissible evidence, including hearsay, if the evidence is of a type that reasonably may be relied upon by an expert in forming an opinion? And third, doesn't the evidence code allow an expert to state on direct examinations the reasons for his opinion or her opinion in the matter, including in the case of an expert, his special knowledge, skill, experience, training, and education upon which it is based? Okay, uh, Mifong, your mind is clearly a whirl with questions, and that's totally understandable. So let me try to answer each of the three questions based on the California Supreme Court's analysis in, in uh, Sanchez. First, let me talk about case-specific out-of-court statements offered for their truth, or case-specific hearsay for short, because when out-of-court statements are offered for their truth, they're hearsay. Now, to understand what case-specific hearsay is, you really do need to understand what it is not. So, unlike laypersons, a witness who qualifies as an expert witness under Evidence Code Section 720 can relate information acquired through their training and experience, even though that information may have been derived from conversations with others, lectures, study of learned uh, treatises, etc. This type of information is technically hearsay, correct? I guess. Yeah, it is. Because, look, a doctor comes in and says, you know, X, Y, Z symptoms are associated with a particular disease. And how does he know that? He knows that from listening to lectures on the disease and reading textbooks. So when he comes in and he makes his, his statement, he's essentially recounting out-of-court statements 
And what he's, he's saying is being offered for the truth. In other words, that the specific symptoms are associated with a particular disease. However, if you go back, the hearsay rule has traditionally not barred an expert testimony, uh, an expert's testimony regarding his general knowledge in the field of expertise, even though technically it might be hearsay. When evidence code section 801B refers to an expert being able to render an opinion based on a matter, including his special knowledge, skill, experience, training, and education, made known to him at or before the hearing, whether or not admissible, that's a type that reasonably may be relied upon by the expert in forming an opinion upon the subject to which the testimony relates, that section is contemplating allowing the expert to rely on the general background type of hearsay that comes from books and lectures. And when Evidence Code Section 802 says an expert can state on direct examination the reasons for his opinion and the matter, again, in including in the case of an expert, special knowledge, skill, experience, training, and education, upon which it's based, it too is contemplating allowing experts to talk about this general background type of hearsay. That's sounding sort of complicated, okay? Well, courts have traditionally allowed that kind of hearsay evidence to be relied upon and recounted by experts in court. And as a Sanchez court points out, you know, this is just a matter of practicality. A physician is not required to personally replicate every medical experiment dating back to the time of Galen in order to relate generally accepted medical knowledge that will assist the jury in deciding the case at hand. But that kind of hearsay is different than case-specific hearsay. Case-specific hearsay is hearsay relating case-specific facts, which, according to the Sanchez court, are facts relating to the particular events and participants alleged to have been involved in the case being tried. In, in trying to understand case-specific facts, think of the kind of facts that would be generally included in a hypothetical given to, to an expert. Well, did the court provide any examples or illustrations of the distinction between these general background facts and case-specific facts? Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, no pun intended, they did. They gave four examples. And I'm sure you will be passing those along to us? You know, Mifong, I sense some hostility towards me, I, and I get a sense that you might not like the Sanchez opinion, but I'm just the messenger, okay? Okay, okay. Well, well, what were the examples that the court gave then? Okay, all right, so they gave four examples. One was an accident case, and they said the fact that, for example, 15 feet of skid marks were measured at an auto accident scene that's case-specific information. The facts could be established, for example, through the testimony of a person who measured the marks, uh, how an automobile skid marks are left on pavement, and the fact that a given equation can be used to estimate speed based on those marks would be background information an expert could provide. That the car leaving the marks had been traveling at 80 miles per hour when the brakes were applied would be the proper subject of an expert opinion. In a homicide case, they said the fact hemorrhaging in the eyes was noted during the autopsy of a suspected homicide victim would be a case-specific fact. That could be established, in other, among other ways, by the testimony of an autopsy surgeon or other witnesses who saw the hemorrhaging or by authenticated photographs depicting it. What circumstances could cause such hemorrhaging would be background information an expert could provide 
and the conclusion to be drawn from the presence of the hemorrhaging would be a legitimate subject for an expert opinion. In another example they gave, uh, a personal injury case, they said a party to a lawsuit, that the fact that a party to a lawsuit suffered a serious head injury at age four would be a case-specific fact. And it could be established by, among other things, uh, a witness who saw the injury uh, sustained, by a doctor who treated it, or by diagnostic medical records. How such injury might be caused, its potential long-term effects, that would be background information an expert could provide. And that the party was still suffering from the effects of the injury and its manifestations would be the proper subject of an expert's opinion. And finally, they gave a, a gang case uh, example. They said the fact an associate of the defendant had a diamond tattooed on his arm would be a case-specific fact that could be established by a witness who saw the tattoo or by an authenticated photograph. That the diamond is a symbol adopted by a given street gang would be background information about which a gang expert could testify. And the expert could also be allowed to give an opinion that the presence of a diamond tattoo shows the person belongs to the gang. I'm recounting all these examples because you know, sometimes it's not going to be that easy to draw the distinction between background information and case-specific information when it comes to gang, uh, gang experts. And hopefully, the more examples you see, the, the better off you'll be in, in sensing when it is case-specific information and when it's not. Another way to figure out the distinction between generally accepted background information and the supplying of case-specific facts is to consider the hypothetical question. You know, experts are often asked to assume certain facts and then are asked what conclusions the expert would draw from those assumed facts. If no competent evidence of a case-specific fact has been or will be admitted, the expert cannot be asked to assume that fact. The kind of fact they will have to assume in these hypothetical questions is usually a case-specific fact. All right, I think I'm getting it now. You know, in some ways this is a new approach, but in some ways it's really an, an old approach. I mean, courts have traditionally drawn this distinction between case-specific hearsay and general background information. But up until Sanchez was decided, the California courts, including the California Supreme Court, had been diluting this distinction and essentially was allowing case-specific out-of-court statements, this is what they were doing, you know, after the, uh, traditional way of doing it and before Sanchez came out. They were essentially allowing these case-specific out-of-court statements to be brought before the jury under evidence code sections 801B and 802, so long as the statements were considered reliable. The approach was to avoid hearsay issues by concluding that statements related by experts are not hearsay because they go only to the basis of the expert's opinion and shouldn't be considered for their truth. And it addressed that uh, this approach addressed hearsay and confrontation clause concerns by uh, giving a limiting instruction that this case-specific hearsay could not be considered for its truth. But Sanchez restores the traditional distinction between the kind of hearsay evidence that can be recounted to the jury and the kind that cannot. Why is the court doing this now? Well, in, over the last few years, we've seen like a lot of lower California appellate courts increasingly uh, expressed disapproval of treating case-specific out-of-court statements offered as a basis for expert testimony as something other than hearsay. And then in 2012, at least five members of the United States Supreme Court 
four, four dissenters, plus uh, a concurring justice, Justice Thomas, in a case called Williams versus Illinois, essentially concluded that when an expert relies on hearsay to provide case-specific facts, considers the statements as, as true, and relates them to the jury as a reliable basis for the expert's opinion, it cannot logically be asserted that the hearsay content is not being offered for its truth. In such a case, the validity of the expert's opinion ultimately does turn on the truth of the hearsay statement. Well, can you sum up the general test now for when an expert can recount case-specific hearsay? Yes, this is the bottom line. All case-specific out-of-court statements relayed by an expert must fall into one of the following categories or the statement is going to be inadmissible. One, the information conveyed by the statement is within the personal knowledge of the expert. So in other words, the expert actually observed it himself or he listened to, for example, the defendant say something so that it, it meets a hearsay exception. And two, the information conveyed by the statement falls within a hearsay exception. The expert doesn't necessarily have to have heard the statement itself, but the, the, statement, the, the statement itself must fall within a hearsay exception. And if there's uh, multiple levels of hearsay within the statement, each one has to fall within a hearsay exception. Or three, the information conveyed by the statement is offered for a purpose other than for its truth, keeping in mind that, it's offer, that if it's offered solely under the rubric that it provides a basis for the expert's opinion, it is not going to be considered offered for a purpose other than uh, its truth. Can you give an example of when information conveyed by the statement is being offered for a non-hearsay purpose, you know, for other than its truth? Sure. The example given by the court was where a gang expert learns that a gang member falsely claimed to have committed a crime to shield an associate from guilt. The expert might conclude that conduct was an example of expected gang loyalty. In such a case, the expert could relate the content of the statement and wouldn't be relating hearsay because the statement would not be offered to prove the speaker actually did the deed. There may also be times in a, in a wide variety of cases when the fact that a statement was made is relevant regardless of whether or not the statement is true. Does this new approach prevent a gang expert from relying on these statements? No, and this is also a pretty critical distinction to, to understand. The gang expert can rely on case-specific hearsay in coming to his conclusion. He or she just cannot tell the jury the content of the statement unless the statement is independently admissible because it's within the personal knowledge of the expert or it has been introduced into evidence through some other means. Does this new approach prevent a gang expert from discussing general background information about a gang? No. You know, the Sanchez court made it a point to highlight that its decision was not calling into question the propriety of or the traditional latitude granted to experts, including gang experts, to testify concerning background information regarding the expert's knowledge and expertise and premises generally accepted in the field, even though such information may be offered for its truth. For instance, neither the defense nor the court seem to have any problem with the expert's testimony about gang culture in general, how one joins a gang, and about how the Delhi gang in particular um, uh, it engages in 
their activities, including that gangs have defined territories or turf that they control through intimidation, uh, that they commit crimes in their turf and protect it against rivals. They didn't have a problem with the idea that this general background information could convey that non-members who would be selling drugs in the gang's territory and who don't pay a, a tax to the gang risk death or injury, or, or that the Delhi gang is named after a park in its territory, has over 50 members, and even that its primary activities included uh, drug sales and illegal gun possession. So then in applying this new approach that case-specific out-of-court statements offered for their truth or hearsay, regardless if the statements are admitted as the basis for an expert's opinion, which out-of-court statements were held to be inadmissible hearsay? Pretty much every document that we, we previously mentioned. The step notice provided to the defendant on June 14, 2011, uh, all of the police reports, the, the one relating to the August 11, 2007 shooting, the one relating to the shooting on December 30, 2007, and the one relating to the arrest of the defendant and another gang member on December 9th. And uh, the FI card created on December 4, 2009 was also viewed as a case-specific out-of-court statement. Well, Jeff, when I was reading over um, Sanchez, it seems like the California Supreme Court not only took up the case to consider one an expert's recounting of out-of-court statements will violate the hearsay rule, but it also considered to a degree to which um, the rule would also bar admission of testimonial hearsay against a criminal defendant, um, as was announced in Crawford versus Washington, which limited an expert's witness from relating hearsay and explaining the basis for his opinion. Well, that's, that's correct. I mean, once the California Supreme Court decided the gang experts recounting of case-specific out-of-court statements violated the hearsay rule, they also had to address the confrontation clause issue in order to decide which standard of review to apply to this alleged error. Why is that? Well, if the admission of the statements was only error under California state law, then the standard on review would be one where the defendant would be required to show that it was reasonably probable that a result more favorable to the defendant would have been reached in the absence of the error. In contrast, if there was a federal constitutional error, the burden would be on the prosecution to show the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Although, even if they had decided there had been no violation of the hearsay rule, a confrontation clause analysis might have been necessary. Why is that? Because out-of-court statements can be admitted over a hearsay objection, for example, if they fall under a hearsay exception, yet still be inadmissible over a confrontation clause objection. So basically, it's inadmissible if it violates the confrontation clause. Yes. The confrontation clause is violated when testimonial hearsay is admitted in evidence unless one, there's a showing of unavailability of the declarant, and two, the defendant was given a prior opportunity for cross-examination or forfeited that right by wrongdoing. A hearsay statement may fall into a hearsay exception, but still be considered testimonial hearsay. For example, a statement of a witness uh, given during a police interrogation might qualify as a declaration against interest, but if it's made to a police officer during an investigatory interview, it will still be deemed testimonial hearsay. So what I'm hearing is if the hearsay is testimonial hearsay, 
it is not ever admissible over a confrontation clause objection, assuming that the declarant of the testimonial hearsay is not present or was not previously subject to cross-examination. Yeah, I mean, subject to a few exceptions recognized at the time of uh, the adoption of the Sixth Amendment, like if the testimonial hearsay was a dying declaration or if the defendant was responsible for the declarant not being present by the uh, defendant's own wrongdoing. If the hearsay is not considered testimonial, is there still a confrontation clause problem? No, the confrontation clause does not apply to non-testimonial hearsay. Nor, by the way, does it bar out-of-court statements, case-specific or otherwise, if the statement is not being offered for its truth. Did the California Supreme Court in Sanchez define what kind of hearsay will be considered testimonial hearsay? Yes, they did a pretty lengthy review of all the United States Supreme Court decisions in the Crawford line that bear on the question of what constitutes testimonial hearsay. Now, based on that review, they observed that the High Court generally considers testimonial statements to be those made primarily to memorialize facts relating to past criminal activity, which can be used uh, like trial testimony. Non-testimonial statements are those whose primary purpose is to deal with an ongoing emergency or some other purpose unrelated to preserving facts for later use at trial. Although the Sanchez Court also noted that in deciding whether the statement is testimonial, the High Court will consider whether the statement was made by or to a government investigating agent, and whether the statement was sufficiently formal to resemble the statutes that permitted use of an ex parte examination to establish facts, which uh, that's the principal evil that the Confrontation Clause was directed at. Now, in light of these decisions, and after focusing on the High Court decision in Williams versus Illinois, that's the one we mentioned earlier, they concluded that when the people offer statements about a completed crime made to an investigating officer by a non-testifying witness, Crawford teaches those hearsay statements are generally testimonial unless they're made in the context of an ongoing emergency or for some primary purpose other than preserving facts for use at trial. Jeff, that sounds a little different than the test that was proposed by the plurality in Williams versus Illinois. Now, from my understanding, under that test, whether a statement was testimonial or not turned on whether it was prepared for the primary purpose of accusing a targeted individual. The, the definition in Sanchez sounds different than the test used by the plurality in Williams because it is different. The Sanchez court's test for testimonial hearsay does not consider whether the statement was made during an investigation of the crime with which the defendant is charged. The statement can be testimonial even though it was made during the investigation of the same defendant in a prior case or during the investigation of someone other than the defendant. In other words, they don't uh, require that the statement be made with a purpose of accusing a targeted individual. Why did the California Supreme Court just disregard the test used by the plurality in Williams? Well, they were so cavalier because that test was rejected by five justices in Williams. The four members of the dissent in Williams they basically stuck with a definition that did not incorporate the additional requirement that the statement accuse a targeted individual. And Justice Thomas, who was the uh, justice who concurred in the conclusion of the plurality, but didn't agree with their reasoning, 
Justice Thomas, he rejects the primary purpose test altogether. Uh, he, he looks at it and tries to determine whether or not the proffered statement was sufficiently formal. And when he talks about sufficiently formal, it means it has to be formal enough to resemble the, the disapproved civil law procedure that was reflected in the, the Marian statutes, and we're talking about the time of the, the founding, that permitted use of an ex parte examination to establish facts. That's interesting. Look, you, you say it as if you're not fascinated by what I just said, but you did ask, so. All right, well, so then, in applying the test that when the people offer statements about a completed crime made to an investigating officer by a non-testifying witness, those statements are generally testimonial unless they are made in the context of an ongoing emergency or for some primary purpose other than preserving facts for use at trial. Did the Sanchez court find the case-specific hearsay from the police reports that was conveyed by the expert to be testimonial hearsay? Yes, the Sanchez court held that the information that was conveyed to the jury by the gang expert, that the gang expert learned about solely through police reports. So for example, like uh, the fact that on August 11th, 2007, the defendant was standing nearby when his cousin was shot, that on December 30th, 2007, defendant's companion, a known Delhi member, was shot, and then on December 9th, 2009, defendant was arrested with Delhi gang members in a garage where drugs and firearms were found. All of those statements came from police reports. These were all considered case-specific testimonial hearsay. That is, all, the, all these reports contained case-specific information gathered during an official investigation of a completed crime even though it was a different completed crime than the crime the defendant was charged with. Do we know why the court used the term completed crime instead of just crime in its definition of testimonial hearsay? You know, it's not entirely clear. I mean, if a crime is not completed, why would the police be taking statements relating to the crime in the first place? It's possible they were thinking that they should include that term so that they could exclude from the definition of testimonial statements taken by the police when the police are acting to gather general intelligence about criminals or gangs. But that speculation on my part, that it's, it's somewhat inconsistent with the language later in the opinion indicating that the step notice was testimonial, we'll talk about this in a little bit, because one of its purposes was to later prove that the recipient had actually been made aware he was associating with a criminal street gang and that he might receive an enhanced punishment should he commit a future crime with members of that gang. So that sort of is inconsistent with the idea that you can't, uh, testimonial hearsay doesn't include this general intelligence gathering. Well, you said earlier, though, that the reports themselves were not introduced at trial. Um, did that make a difference to the court? No, they, they didn't consider that uh, particularly important. The information in the report was recounted by the officer, and, and now I'm quoting from the Sanchez opinion. Testimonial statements do not become less so simply because an officer summarizes a verbatim statement or compiles the description uh, of multiple witnesses. What about the step notices? Uh, did the court find the step notices were testimonial hearsay? Yes, at least as to the retained portion of the step notice. Why did the court come to that conclusion? Wasn't the giving of notice to serve a community policing function to dissuade future gang participation and criminal activity? 
And obviously, the defendant's primary purpose in making the statements documented in the retained portion of the step notice was not to establish facts to be later used against him or his companions at trial. All true, but the part of the step notice the gang expert recounted in court was the portion of the notice that was retained by the police. The Sanchez court believed that this was the purpose behind the officer recording defendant's biographical information, who the defendant was with, and what statements the defendant made. Since if that weren't the case, there would, there would at least not appear to be any need for the issuing officer to swear to its accuracy. The court considered the fact as well that another purpose of the step notice is to later prove that the recipient had actually been made aware he was associating with a criminal street gang and that he might receive uh, enhanced punishment later, later on if he committed a future crime with members of the gang. And the court also took into account the formality of the notice. The court observed it's, you know, it's part of an official police form containing an officer's sworn attestation that he issued the notice on a given date and that it accurately reflected the attendant circumstances, including defendant's statements. So they believed that kind of notice was similar to the criminalist's sworn attestation in the Melendez-Diaz case, which the United States Supreme Court had held to be testimonial. And they also thought it was more formal than the unsworn but signed report of a blood analyst that attested to performing the um, various tests using normal protocols that the high court found testimonial in Bullcoming versus New Mexico. And finally, the court remarked that the step notice appears sufficiently formal to satisfy Justice Thomas's approach as well, since the issuing officer made a sworn declaration under penalty of perjury that the representations in the step notice were true. What about the FI card, the one which documented a police contact with defendant on December 4th of 2009 while he was in the company of a known gang member? Did the Sanchez court find that card to be testimonial as well? You know, the court did not decide whether the statement of the gang expert relating what was said in the FI card was testimonial because it wasn't clear whether, as the attorney general was arguing, the primary purpose of the FI card was to gather information for community policing efforts and potential civil injunctions, or if, it, it, or if as the defendant was arguing, the FI card was produced during the course of the investigation of defendant's December 9, 2009 arrest for drug possession, and thus uh, its primary purpose was, the defendant claimed, was evidentiary. However, the court indicated, they gave at least an indication, that if the card, if this FI card was produced in the course of an ongoing criminal investigation, it would be more akin to a police report, making it more likely that it would be considered testimonial. In light of the court finding that case-specific testimonial hearsay, the reports and the step notice, was introduced, did they reverse the case? Yes. They held that since the hearsay statements in the police report and step notice return were testimonial, the admission of those statements violated the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confront and cross-examine witnesses. And since there was a constitutional violation, they applied the standard for reviewing constitutional error, whether the introduction of those statements was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Under that standard, did they find the admission of the hearsay was prejudicial? Yes, and the prejudice required reversal of the Penal Code Section 186.22 Subdivision B criminal street gang enhancements that uh, were attached to the substantive charges. Why did, they, um, why did they find it to be prejudicial? 
Because the prosecution's theory of the case was that the defendant acted in association with the Delhi gang and committed the underlying offenses intending to benefit the gang. And the main evidence of defendant's intent to benefit Delhi was the gang expert's recitation of testimonial hearsay. The court you know, pointed out that without that case-specific hearsay testimony, the only evidence proving one of the required elements of a section uh, 186.22b1 enhancement, i.e. that the defendant intended to promote or further or assist in any criminal conduct by gang members, was the gang expert's testimony that if a non-member sold drugs in a gang's territory and failed to pay a tax, that person risked gang retaliation. So that was the only evidence. But the court held one can't deduce merely from that evidence that when the defendant possessed drugs for sale in Delhi territory, he was associated with the gang, would pay a tax, or intended to promote further or assist in any criminal conduct by gang members. Does that mean that they also reversed the substantive charge of active participation in a criminal street gang in violation of Section 186.22, Subdivision A? You know, they didn't need to, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, the substantive charge, the, the, the substantive gang charge, 186.22A, that had been reversed in the Court of Appeal on a completely different ground. And that re reversal was not challenged by uh, the prosecution in the California Supreme Court. So they never actually had to decide whether or not there was prejudice as to that offense. But I'm pretty sure that if the conviction of the substantive offense had not been reversed on that different ground, it would have been reversed for similar reasons to why the 186.22b enhancement was reversed. All right, so that takes care of the holding in Sanchez. What we want to know now is um, what does this mean for us as prosecutors? What are the ramifications of the holding? No problem, though our listeners should be aware that the opinions about to be voiced are those of IPG alone, and whether N or any appellate court will ever agree with any of these uh, opinions is far from guaranteed. And probably not even warranted. No, not even warranted. In fact, it's crazy risky to rely on any opinion by Jeff Rubin, I mean, by IPG at all, right? You know, I don't know if I would go that far. Why don't you just ask the questions? Okay. First question. In light of Sanchez, can our gang experts still provide background information about general gang behavior, um, such as the nature of the gang structure, its territory, and or its history? For the most part, yes. You know, in Sanchez, the California Supreme Court took pains to emphasize that its decision did not call into question, and I'm quoting now from the, from the court, the propriety of an expert's testimony concerning background information regarding his knowledge and expertise and premises generally accepted in the field. The court said an expert's background knowledge and experience is what distinguishes the expert from a lay witness and testimony relating such background information has never been subject to exclusion as hearsay, even though it's offered for its truth. Now, it's true that when it comes to gang expert testimony, the dividing line between providing generally accepted background information and case-specific facts can get a little blurry. However, in most cases, a gang expert should be permitted to discuss general gang behavior or descriptions of a gang's conduct and talk about the gang's territory. For example, the expert in Sanchez testified generally about gang culture, how one joins a gang, and about the Delhi gang in particular. The expert ex 
explained that gangs have defined territories or turf that they control through intimidation, that they commit crimes on their turf and protect it against rivals, that non-members of the gang who sell drugs in the gang's territory and who don't pay a, quote, tax to the gang risk death or injury. The experts said that also that the Delhi gang is named after a park in its territory and has over 50 members and described its primary primary activities as including drug sales and illegal drug possession. So that was all evidence that the gang expert testified to in Sanchez. And regarding this testimony, the Sanchez court pointed out the defendant didn't even challenge the gang expert's background testimony about general gang behavior or descriptions of the Delhi gang's conduct and its territory. The court then went on to say this testimony was based on well-recognized sources in the gang expert's area of expertise and that it was relevant and admissible evidence as to the Delhi gang's history and general operations. And then later in the opinion, they also described the expert testimony that if a non-member sold drugs in a gang's territory and failed to pay a tax, the person risked gang retaliation as general and admissible evidence. Okay, second question then. Can a prosecution gang expert testify that he relied on numerous police reports and or field identification cards informing his opinion that someone is a member of a particular gang or committed an offense to promote or further the interest of a criminal street gang? You know, subject to one caveat, which I'll tell you about a little later, the expert should be able to describe what type, what type of information he relied on. As pointed out in Sanchez, an expert can rely on hearsay informing an opinion and may tell the jury in general terms that he did so. The jury has to independently evaluate the probative value of an expert's testimony. And evidence code section 802 properly, they said, allows an expert to relate generally the kind and the source of the matter upon which his opinion rests. This is because a jury can place you know, greater or lesser confidence in an expert depending on what type of information he's relying on. Are you, you know, getting your information from comic books or academic treaties? Gang experts, like all others, can rely on background information accepted in their field of expertise under the traditional latitude given by the evidence code. And since gang experts typically rely on police reports and field identification cards, a gang expert should be permitted to state that the basis of his opinion comes from such reports and cards. So how much detail then can the gang expert give in describing the type of police reports or field ID cards that he or she relied upon? That's going to be the subject of lots of post-Sanchez litigation, I, I think. You know, where no, hearsay, where no hearsay expressed or implied is included in the description of the police reports or field identification cards, the expert should be permitted to state, for example, I reviewed X number of reports and field identification cards. I also suspect that a modicum amount of implied hearsay inherent in describing the reports will not be considered case-specific hearsay. For example, the expert could probably testify that he reviewed police reports and field identification cards relating to gang activity during the years 2012 to 2015. On the other hand, the more detailed the description the reports or FI cards reviewed, uh, the, the more detailed description in those, uh, of those cards and reports, the more likely the expert's description will be considered the introduction of case-specific hearsay. For example, 
a gang expert will likely not be able to describe what he reviewed, what he asked as to what he reviewed and coming to his opinion, uh, say something like, well, I reviewed a report of an incident where gang member Smith was alleged to have shot rival gang member Jones at the intersection of 88th and Eads in Oakland on November 3rd, 2015, unless that level of detail was uh, properly and independently established. So let's say our gang expert gives an opinion that the defendant was a member of the Mexican Mafia. And we ask that expert what his or her opinion is based on. If the expert says, my opinion is based on a police report from August of 2015, isn't that expert really getting in implied hearsay before the jury? Um, that someone or several people told the police officer that the defendant was a member of the Mexican Mafia? And if that's the case, would we then run afoul of the rule against admission of case-specific hearsay? You know, I'm not going to be surprised if the defense makes that kind of argument. The idea that what is really being conveyed is that the reports, if considered as true, support the expert's conclusion the individual was acting on behalf of a criminal street gang. For example, in a case called People versus Valadez from 2013, the court found that even though a gang expert did not testify to specific out-of-court statements in discussing the background of rival street gangs, the statement was implicit in his testimony. But this type of argument can be made anytime any expert states he relied on particular documents in coming to his conclusion. It's not unique to the gang context, and if that argument were generally valid, it would invalidate much of what the Sanchez court approved when it comes to general background testimony. I think where the specific content is not conveyed, we should generally be on safe ground, subject to one caveat. Oh, good, caveats. I love caveats. What are those? Well, the implied hearsay argument might be successful if it turns out that, one, the opinion is in fact based on case-specific hearsay included in the document, and two, the sole basis for the expert's opinion is case-specific hearsay. For example, let's say that on direct examination of foundational hearing, a gang expert gives an opinion that the defendant is a member of a particular gang and acted on behalf of a gang. The gang expert then states that in coming to his conclusion, he relied on police reports. On cross-examination, the defense elicits the fact that the opinion derives solely from two police reports. In particular, a statement in one police report that a fellow gang member identified defendant as being a member of a gang, and in another report, a statement where a fellow gang member stated the defendant was looking to build his rep in the gang by committing an act of violence. And, and this is key, the expert had no other evidence the defendant was affiliated with the gang in question. In this circumstance, the expert may very well be prevented from rendering the opinion at trial because the opinion is really just case-specific hearsay disguised as general background information, and it's testimonial case-specific hearsay to boot. In other words, the expert is being used simply as a conduit to convey express or implied case-specific hearsay. And even under case law that didn't draw this sharp distinction between case-specific and general background hearsay, that is cases that permitted some case-specific hearsay to be admitted, the court would not allow a witness to simply parrot out-of-court testimonial statements of cooperating witnesses or confidential informants directly to the jury in the guise of expert opinion. And even prior California cases have prevented experts from simply repeating hearsay evidence 
without applying any expertise whatsoever. So in the IPG a memo that accompanies this podcast, I, I talk about two, two cases. They're both federal cases uh, to help kind of illustrate this uh, notion. One of these cases is United States versus Mejia, which is a Second Circuit decision from 2008, where an expert testified that the gang had issued that uh, MS-13 taxed nine-member drug dealers. But it turned out that this testimony was based directly on statements made by an MS-13 member who was in custody and was being interviewed during the course of the very same investigation that resulted in the case against the defendant. The Mejia court pointed out that to form his drug tax opinion, the expert did not have to conduct a synthesis of various source materials or apply any of his extensive experience or a particular methodology. They viewed the expert's opinion in this regard as simply a direct repetition of an out-of-court testimonial statement. And this was one reason they found the expert's testimony violated the Confrontation Clause. But what if the expert's opinion is based on a compilation of sources that might include testimonial hearsay and there's no direct reference, and no direct reference is made to the content of any out-of-court case-specific statements? Then the claim the expert is being used as a conduit to convey implied case-specific hearsay is likely to fail. So the other case I, was, uh, I put into the IPG memo is United States versus Johnson. It's a Fourth Circuit case. The government called two expert witnesses to help the jury interpret recordings of intercepted phone calls made between various members of a drug conspiracy. Now, during cross-examination of one of the experts, the expert stated that he was basing his opinion on the meaning of particular words on their context, but also said, look, I'm basing it on other events occurring around the time of the intercepted call, on the known nature of the organization, informant information, on interviews, on evidence that was seized, and on all the facts that were developed during the course of the investigation. And then the other expert explained that he considered several sources of information, such as evidence that had been seized during the investigation, before reaching a conclusion about how to interpret a particular word in a conversation. In addition, he said he took into account interviews with witnesses, cooperators, and cooperating defendants. So on appeal, the defendant claimed, look, the expert's testimony violated the Confrontation Clause because the experts based their opinions on testimonial hearsay from interviews with informants and cooperating witnesses. But the Johnson court found no error, even uh, though the interviews were considered testimonial, since the experts never made direct reference to the content of the interviews, or even stated with any particularity what they learned from those interviews. Instead, each expert presented his independent judgment and specialized understanding to the jury. And that understanding was the product of the uh, agent's accumulation of experience over many years of investigating uh, narcotics organizations and from contacts with the informants and witnesses who operate uh, within these organizations. The court said the fact that their expertise was in some way shaped by their exposure to testimonial hearsay doesn't mean the Confrontation Clause was violated when they presented their independent assessments to the jury. Because in that case, they're not conduits for hearsay, their consideration of this uh, case-specific hearsay um, was not uh, considered to be a Crawford problem. Granted, neither Mejia nor Johnson were reaching their conclusions by applying the exact same analysis used in Sanchez. Nevertheless, 
Those decisions reflect overlapping concerns with Sanchez that experts should not be allowed to convey case-specific out-of-court statements, however they're characterized or described, under the guise of providing an expert opinion. And to that extent, both can provide some guidance as to when, under the Sanchez analysis, there'll be a violation of the rules against admission of hearsay and or violation of the Confrontation Clause if the statements uh, amount to case-specific testimonial hearsay. And we, we cite them both in the IPG. Also, if prosecutors are faced with uh, this issue, uh, they can look to prior California decisions, decisions that predated Sanchez, where uh, the court was applying uh, a standard that in some ways is more beneficial to the prosecution. Even under that prior standard, the expert was not allowed to bring before the jury incompetent hearsay evidence under the guise of giving reasons for the expert's opinion and would find that kind of hearsay would be impermissibly introduced. It, it's a pretty fair assumption that, in general, if under these prior decisions, the, the hearsay that was introduced was held to be impermissibly introduced, there also, the, that kind of hearsay will also be the kind of hearsay excluded under the analysis later adopted in Sanchez. So when a gang expert then is informing a jury that um, in coming to his or her conclusion, he or she relied on conversations with informants, gang members, and or other officers involved in investigating gang activity, can a gang expert explain that's how he reaches conclusion? You know, the analysis regarding whether a gang expert can testify that he relied on conversations with informants, gang members, or other officers in coming to his opinion is similar to the, the issue whether the expert can say he relied on numerous police reports or FI cards in reaching his opinion. Gang experts can rely on background information accepted in their field of expertise, and since gang experts typically rely on statements of gang members, informants, and other police officers, a gang expert should be permitted to state that the basis of his opinion comes from these sources so long as the content of the statements is not being conveyed. Can prosecutors assume then that if the statement of a gang member or informant that relays general information about the gang or about defendant's membership in a gang falls into a hearsay exception and the statement was not given as part of the particular investigation into the crime with which the defendant is currently charged, um, is that that statement can we assume that that statement may later be recounted in court without running um, afoul of the Confrontation Clause? No. Sanchez does away with the idea that if the statement was made during an investigation, but was only meant to be used in court in a case unrelated to the charges for which the defendant is on trial, the statement will not be viewed as testimonial. Okay, well let's say we put on an expert to opine that a defendant is a member of the particular gang and that opinion is based, at least in part, on case-specific testimonial hearsay that is never introduced. We elicit the opinion but never ask about the nature of the information that the expert relied on. Can the defense then argue either that the expert should not be allowed to do that because in order to effectively challenge the opinion, they need to cross-examine what the expert relied upon. And if they have to do that, then inadmissible case-specific hearsay will come into evidence, and then they will be in the same position as if the prosecution introduced it themselves. All right, so if they make that kind of argument, 
be prepared to cite to the judge this New Hampshire case, which is cited in the accompanying IPG memo, which addressed this question in the context of a confrontation clause challenge. So in that case, the prosecution sought to introduce expert testimony about the cause of a fire in a murder case. The expert's conclusion was based in part on a statement of a deceased witness. The defense claimed the expert's testimony would violate the confrontation clause even though the experts did not expressly recount the declaration of the deceased witness. As to that argument, the New Hampshire court held the expert testimony was admissible so long as the hearsay statements of the deceased witness were not actually presented to the jury on direct examination. The defense also argued that without the introduction of the statements, the expert would be providing only meaningless conclusions to the jury, and thus their testimony would be more prejudicial, the expert's testimony would be more prejudicial than probative. But the New Hampshire court shot that one down too. They pointed out the ability of experts to opine based on admissible, inadmissible evidence without recounting the evidence is well established and indicated the conclusions are not meaningless because defense counsel can cross-examine the witness about the statements underlying the opinion. A defendant raised this argument that, look, allowing the experts to testify on direct examination regarding their opinions without testifying to the actual statements puts the defense in this bad position of choosing between their right to cross-examine the experts and their right to confront the declarant of the statement. That is, the defendant argued he couldn't show through cross-examination that the expert's opinion was faulty unless he elicited the declarant's actual statement. But if he elicited the declarant's actual statement, he would effectively be introducing hearsay without any ability to confront the declarant. But the New Hampshire court again disagreed. The court held that while statements of the, of, the, the, of the declarant who was deceased would be hearsay if offered on direct, on cross-examination, elicitation of the statements would be for the purpose of impeaching the expert's opinions and not for the truth of the statement. Accordingly, since the statement would not be offered for their truth, the, the declarant's statement would not be offered for its truth, the confrontation clause would not be violated. And finally, the New Hampshire court rejected defendant's argument that he was unconstitutionally being forced to choose between two rights, his right to confront the hearsay declarant and his right to cross-examine the expert. They said neither the purpose behind the right of confrontation nor the purpose behind the right of cross-examination is impaired by the rule allowing experts to rely on inadmissible hearsay evidence without recounting it in court. Bottom line, on cross-examination, the defendant can open the door to testimony regarding the basis for the expert's opinion without violating the confrontation clause or hearsay rule. However, relying simply on an expert's opinion without introducing any of the case-specific hearsay that supports his opinion may be a risky bet for other reasons. And what are those other reasons? Well, you know, there's California case law out there which indicates that expert opinion te testimony by itself is insufficient to find an offense with gang-related. So if the defense doesn't elicit the basis for the expert's conclusion, the expert's opinion may be of very little value in proving up the gang clause. And if the defense counsel knows that the opinion will only be based on inadmissible evidence, in other words, that the prosecution has no intent to bring in the declarant of these statements, the defense may well be successful in precluding the opinion from being given at all under 352 because it's so prejudicial but lacks any significant probative value. In these cases, which will be cited in the IPG, come to the conclusion even under the more pro-prosecution law of Gardelais. 
Jeff, would you characterize the pre-Sanchez law as more pro-prosecution than Gardelay, or is Sanchez, is Sanchez all bad for the prosecution? No, Sanchez is not all bad for the prosecution. Uh, the Sanchez court's sharpening of the distinction between an expert permissibly testifying to general background information regarding his knowledge and expertise and premises generally accepted in the field and an expert impermissibly introducing case-specific out-of-court statements for the truth is the silver, gold, and platinum lining for prosecutors facing mental defense experts who try and squeeze in statements of the defendants under the guise the statements are being offered as uh, a basis for their opinion and are not actually being offered for their truth. Sanchez is going to help us in that area. Well, it doesn't really help us in the gang area, but... Let me ask you about the impact of Sanchez on proving up um, predicate acts. So to prove a violation of subdivision A of 186.22, we have to prove, among other things, that the defendant actively participated in a criminal street gang. To prove the, to prove the group defendant actively participated in is a criminal street gang, we have to prove, among other things, that the members of the group have individually or collectively engaged in a pattern of criminal gang activity. And then, to prove a pattern of criminal gang activity, we have to show members of the gang have either been convicted of, or have committed, attempted to commit, or conspired to commit two or more of the offenses listed in 186.22, subdivision E of the statute, that those offenses were committed within a certain time period, and that the crimes were committed on separate occasions or by two or more persons. These offenses are called the predicate acts. Will the holding in Sanchez hinder our ability to prove up the fact? Um, will that holding in Sanchez hinder our ability to prove the predicate acts based on certified convictions? You know, it depends. Sanchez is not going to stop us from introducing prior convictions of the defendant or fellow gang members. But if we need to prove the persons who were convicted of those crimes were gang members, then we're going to need to introduce evidence that is not case-specific hearsay. And by the way, in a case uh, from 2011 called People v. Hill that had engaged in some speculation how it might have ruled on the admissibility of a federal plea agreement or guilty plea allocation if the California Supreme Court ever decided to rule the way it eventually did in Sanchez, the court indicated such a plea agreement would be considered uh, case-specific testimonial hearsay and a guilty plea allocation would fall under that same category. Well, I have a lot more questions, including whether you think a gang enhancement that is reversed because it was based on the improper admission of testimony hearsay can be retried. But I think our listeners are tired of listening to us, so I'm going to ask you two questions that are on a lot of prosecutors' minds. The first is, will the holding in People versus Sanchez be retroactive to cases not yet final on appeal? And if so, does that mean grand jury hearings or preliminary examinations must be redone if the case is still pending for trial? All right. At a minimum, the portion of the holding in Sanchez that says it's constitutional error for a court to allow a case-specific testimonial hearsay under the guise of it being the basis for an expert's opinion, that will definitely be applied retroactively to all cases not yet final on appeal. However, since the Confrontation Clause does not apply at PX or grand jury, its retroactivity in this regard is largely irrelevant. It is also very likely that the portion of the holding 
that says it's state law error for a court to allow in case-specific hearsay under the guise of it being the basis for an expert's opinion, it's also very likely that that portion will be applied to all post-PX and post-grand jury cases that have not yet gone to trial. Why is that? All right, well, in California, to determine whether a decision should be given retroactive effect, the California courts first look at this initial inquiry where they, they try to determine, does the decision establish a new rule of law? Only if it does establish a new rule is there even a chance the new rule will not apply retroactively. If the court's ruling is viewed as a new rule of law and there was a prior contrary rule, there remains a chance the new rule will not apply retroactively. I think Sanchez was a new rule of law and there was a prior contrary rule. The rule of, uh, in the case of Gardley, allowing experts to rely and relate case-specific hearsay to explain the basis for an expert's ruling. But that doesn't end the issue. In this circumstance, there remains that ordinary assumption of retrospective application. Now, courts can choose to make, on policy grounds, an exception to this ordinary assumption. But in making that determination, they have to look at three things. The purpose to be served by the new standards, the extent of reliance by law enforcement authorities on the old standards, and the effect on the administration of justice of applying the new law retroactively. The more directly the new rule in question serves to preclude the conviction of innocent persons, the more likely it is that the rule will be afforded retrospective application. And if the rule relates to characteristics of the judicial system, which are essential to minimizing convictions of the innocent, it will apply retroactively, regardless of the reliance of prosecutors on former law, and regardless of the burden which retroactivity will place on the judicial system. If the primary purpose of the new rule is to promote reliable determinations of guilt or innocence, courts will apply it retroactively. Decisions have generally been made fully retroactive where the right vindicated is one which is essential to the integrity of the fact-finding process. On the other hand, retroactivity is not usually required when the interest to be vindicated is one which is merely collateral to a fair determination of guilt or innocence. Does the rule precluding experts from discussing the content of case-specific out-of-court statements when those statements are being offered as true vindicate a right that's essential to the integrity of the fact-finding process? Or is the interest being vindicated collateral to the fair determination of guilt or innocence? Sanchez arguably provides some support for treating the decision as the former, since requiring cross-examination is done to help ensure the evidence on which the jury bases its decision is reliable. Cross-examination and the exclusion of hearsay help ensure the integrity of the fact-finding process. On the other hand, applying the rule in the context of a preliminary examination or grand jury is a different story. The question at the preliminary examination of the grand jury is not guilt or innocence, and thus a rule impacting the admissibility of evidence is not essential to the fact-finding process and would be collateral to a fair determination of guilt or innocence. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm not aware that there are any cases out there that have applied a new rule of law retroactively when it comes to pending appeals of trials, but not to pending 995 motions. And if such a distinction is not drawn, the chances of us prevailing on the argument that the new rules regarding use of hearsay to support an expert opinion should not be applied retroactively is pretty slim. A more fruitful approach 
might be to concede the retroactivity of the new law, but argue application of the new law in, that, in the context of reviewing a preliminary examination or grand jury is not prejudicial. That is, prosecutors can argue that if case-specific hearsay is excluded, so all that's left in the review is the expert's opinion, that by itself is sufficient evidence to establish probable cause. Now, it may not be sufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the gang clause or the, or the substantive gang charge, but the question before the reviewing court is not whether or not there would have been a holding order or an indictment if the expert had not testified, but only whether the holding order would still have issued if the expert gave his opinion but did not recount the hearsay upon which the opinion was based. It's highly likely that the opinion itself, even without reference to the contents of, of the hearsay which it was based upon, would be sufficient by itself to support a holding order or indictment for either a violation of section 196.22a or the enhancement under 196.22b. In other words, the absence of this supporting hearsay would not be particularly significant. Well, what if the defense argues that if the expert could not relate the contents of the statements upon which his opinion was based, then the magistrate would not place much weight on the expert's opinion um, and therefore may even exclude it as irrelevant? You know, that's not a frivolous defense argument. After all, if no drugs are introduced into evidence, for example, in, in a, a different context, if no drugs are introduced into evidence, then an expert's opinion regarding whether the drugs were, were possessed for sale isn't relevant, even if the expert is actually familiar with the drugs. But again, we're just talking here about a PX or grand jury, and I do think a credible argument can be made that the opinion of the expert itself is enough to get us over the very low hump of probable cause needed to establish uh, why the uh, defendant committed the offense or, or whether the defendant was a member of a gang. Okay, well, as I've mentioned, I actually have a lot more questions, but in my expert opinion, our listeners are probably at their breaking point. So let's end it here. Well, uh, Mifong, I concur. Thank you.